All right, as the baskets pass by, you can drop your uh, connection cards. Again, um, if we haven't met, again, my name is Benger. And we have been walking through a series this fall called Kingdom Come. Essentially, uh, we are looking at the early history of, of the kings of Israel. And, and, and as we dive in, um, I, I just want to kind of confess something a little bit. Um, parenting continues to get more and more complex for me. I've got an 8 and a 10-year-old. Uh, my wife and I were foster parents. Sometimes we have other little kids running around. And, and honestly, as I look back and, 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 and I think about what it was like, and, and all parents have a tendency to do this, um, you know, sometimes I long for the days where parenting was simpler. Now, notice I didn't say easier, right? Because if, if you've got a newborn, you've got a two-year-old, you haven't slept for two years, honestly, right? I mean, it's not easier, but in many respects, it's simpler, Right, like the choices, the things, um, the, the the things that you've got to keep track of um, are are fewer. Now, there's a ton of books. If you're a new mom or a new dad, there's a ton of books, ton of blogs, ton of podcasts. They're gonna throw all these things at you and say, man, if you're not doing it this way and this sleep schedule, you're, you're a terrible parent. Okay, don't listen to them. They just want your money. Okay, it really is a little bit simple. Just just love your kids, feed them, let them sleep, change their diaper. I mean, I long for those days as as parenting continues on, I get more and more complex. Remember, I didn't say easier. I don't want any emails, okay? I didn't say easier, all right? I love infants, but I love giving them back. It's fantastic. But as parenting gets more and more complex, um, I, I think part of the reason why it, it starts to, to get harder, or at least more complex, is this. As your kids get older, at least I'm finding this, um, part of our role as parents is to help them understand what, what really matters, in a sense. Let me, let me explain this. When you punish something that your, parent, that your, your kids are doing, or, or when, when you reward something, you praise something really highly every time you see it, what you're doing is you're communicating in some way or another, this is what really matters. Now, here's the problem. Parenting is exhausting, right? And so when, when you communicate these things, at least maybe I'm the only one in the room that does this, but sometimes I parent out of my own frustrations. And so what I do is I communicate that these small things that happen to annoy me, right, that toy, Legos on the ground. In fact, I, I did this yesterday, okay? My kid was in bed. It wasn't even her. But there was Legos all over the place. And I'm like, oh, and I called out her name, right? When I do that in that moment, when I'm, when I'm communicating is Legos on the ground are more important than anything else, right? Am I, is this just me? It's just me. Fine. But when you step back as a parent, you realize, okay, I need to think through this. I, I, I need to think through this parenting thing because there are things that I want my kids as they grow older, as we get into the adult age and, and they get out of the house and they go to college or they get a trade or they go to the military, whatever it is, um, there's, there's this idea that I want them to know what really matters. I want them to have these things down. I want them to care about the things that really matter. Now, you don't have to be a parent to get this. Right? Studies show that if you're in the workplace, studies show that as an employee, you are far more productive if you have been communicated and if you understand the goals or, or, or the, kind of the big idea, <clears throat> excuse me, of your company or your department. Studies show that if you, uh, if you understand what the big, big goal is, if you understand what you're trying to accomplish, then you'll be far more productive than if you're just given a list of things to accomplish. Like, hey, if you just do these 10 things every single day, every single week, every single month, you're good to go. If you don't understand why behind it, you're not going to be very productive, right? Some of you experienced that. Some of you experienced in, in high school or in college uh, those, those moments when the professor tells you, listen, if we talked about it or you're supposed to read about it, it's on the test, Right? 
I mean, that just produces anxiety, and, and, and actually, you don't learn that much in those situations. But if, you're, if your teacher says, okay, this is really important in your field, or this is going to be on the final, you're far more likely to be focused and hone in on what really matters. Now, here's where this connects today. Um, all of us in this room have a, kind of a variety of backgrounds, of spiritual backgrounds. I, I didn't grow up in this thing called church. Maybe you've heard that story before. Um, some of you grew up in church. Maybe you grew up in a church like this one. Maybe you grew up in a church, uh, a different kind of church. Maybe there was this vague sense of God in your family, but you didn't really go to church. But whatever it is, most of us grew up with this idea, okay, this is what really matters to God. Whether it was communicated to us that clearly or not. For some of you, that was, that was crystal clear. For some of you, there was, a, there was a list. Maybe you stay away from these things and you do these things, and that's what really matters to God. For some of you, it felt like a moving target. Like you, were, you wanted to honor God and you were trying to figure this out, but, but you, you stepped into something. Oh, I'm not supposed to do that because I got this reaction uh, against the people in my community about that. And, and, and felt like the target was moving and it was impossible almost to figure out what really matters to God. Well, this question, what matters to God, at least in the context, because there's many things that matter to God, but at least in the context of our relationship with him, is actually what we're going to look at in the text that we have today. Um, if you want to flip to 1 Samuel chapter 16, it's going to be on page 296 in the blue Bibles under your seat. If you didn't bring your Bible um, and, and, and you need one, we want you to use the one underneath your seat. If you need one at home, um, take out a pen and put your name in it because we would love for those to walk out the door. Um, but just to back you up before we read this, um, as we've walked through the history of the early kings of Israel, um, Israel as a nation at one point did not have a king. They, they were led by God through uh, the leadership of what's known as judges. And judges um, are, are not what we think of with a gavel as judges, but they were political, military, and spiritual leaders uh, in the early history of Israel. And then one day Israel says, hey, we want a king like all the other kingdoms, kingdoms around us. And so God warns through Samuel, the prophet Samuel, the last great judge of Israel, warns them that you don't want a king because a king is a harsh leader. And, and Israel said, no, we want a king. And so, and so God said, okay. And he gave them a king, and the king was Saul. And Saul looked the part as a king. But as we've seen, Saul was, was scared about his leadership. He had some early successes. But, but really, Saul was not about honoring God and, and serving those around him. And so at a certain point, um, God says, okay, listen. Because Saul has rejected me, I've, I've rejected Saul as king over Israel. And we began to transition to the next King, and that's where we're going to pick up uh, the story today. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. If you're able, would you do me a favor? Would you please stand out of reverence for the word of God? Would you please stand as we read this? 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him as being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. 
And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. But when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made sevens of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then then Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So Samuel is grieving because he loves his people and he loves God. And and his heart is broken over over what has happened with the the kingdom of Israel under the leadership of Saul. Because we have seen Saul time and time again disobey God. And so Samuel is grieving and and, and God says, listen, why are you grieving? I've chosen somebody else that I will anoint who's going to be king over Israel. And you're going to find him in Bethlehem. He's going to be the son of Jesse. So get up and go. And, and Samuel's like, hold on. Saul gets wind of this. I'm done for. Right? And God says, don't worry. I got it. You're going, to, you're going to go and you're going to say that you're going to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, now to us, that might seem a little bit shady right there. Like, you know, is, is God a little worried about that? But, but what's interesting is, first of all, God's just simply asking Samuel to be shrewd about what he's doing. Because this is not an errand for everybody. This is an errand simply for David and perhaps his family. And second of all, it's really interesting that as Samuel is sent to anoint the next king of Israel, that it's going to be in the context of a worship service. I mean, this is, this is a big deal. And it's almost as if God is saying, okay, Saul was the kind of king that was, that was the great king in terms of human beings' eyes. I mean, Saul was the one that, that you and I would look at and say, that one's going to be king. right? He was literally head and shoulders above the rest. But this is going to be a different kind of king. This is almost a clue into what's about to happen. It's going to be framed in the context of a worship service. So Samuel goes, and, 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 and it's kind of like when the principal calls in and says, hey, you send so-and-so to the office, or your boss's boss's boss calls you on the phone and says, hey, I want to talk to you. Like, even if nothing is wrong, even if you haven't done anything wrong, right, when that call comes, the, the heart, you know, starts beating a little faster, the blood starts pumping, because you're like, what happened, right? That's kind of the case here, right? Samuel shows up, and sometimes when Samuel shows up, it's because he's come just ready to lay the hammer down, and, and so they say, Samuel, what's wrong? Do you, do you come peaceably? He said, don't worry about it, right? I've come worship. I've come for a sacrifice. Consecrate yourselves. Get yourselves ready. Do your ritual cleansings. And by the way, Jesse, you and your sons really, really need to be there. And so they get ready and they all show up for this service. Now, it's, it's not really known how much uh, Jesse, how much the town, how much Jesse's sons really understand about Samuel's errand. Right? On the other side, we, we know what Samuel is doing here, but, but, but there's some question as to whether Samuel's the only one that truly knows, like, okay, this is about the next king of Israel, 
We don't know if Jesse's in on the scene. He knows something is happening, but we don't know all the details that Jesse knows. All we know is that Jesse's sons show up. Jesse shows up. He brings his sons before Samuel. And the firstborn, Eliab, shows up. And Samuel looks at him and says, man, that guy's a king. Right? This guy is all. This guy looks like a king. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And then God tells something to Samuel. That's actually what we're going to spend most of our time on in this passage. Verse 6 says, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, verse 7, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. Literally, it says, says, man looks with his eyes. People, we look with our eyes, but the Lord judges by the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. Another one of the sons combined, another one. And finally, the first seven combined, and God's like, nope, nope, nope. And Samuel's feeling a little uncomfortable, right? Because he's asked Jesse to show up. They at least know that something's going to happen with the sons. And Samuel says, just, just by, I, I know I told you to bring all your sons. Just out of curiosity, are there any other? And Jesse's like, oh, David. But he's, he's the youngest, literally the smallest. He's the least significant. In fact, we've given him a very insignificant job. I mean, this, this was a big family. It may have been a, a wealthy and well-known family, but we've given him a very insignificant job. Normally, we'd hire somebody to do this, but we gave David the job of tending the sheep. In fact, it's very likely that David didn't even know what was going on in town. He didn't even know that the prophet Samuel showed up. He didn't even know that there was a worship service, that there was a sacrifice. Nobody bothered to go and get him. Samuel says, go get him. We're not going to start until he gets here. So somebody goes and gets David. And we're told that he's ruddy. It might mean red complexion. We're told that he's, he's handsome, right? And, and don't get me wrong. I'd love to be called handsome, right? It doesn't happen as often as it ever did. Probably not. But these are not compliments when it comes to a king of Israel. The point that the text is trying to make here is that this is, this is a pretty boy, okay? This is not the next king. This is not a guy that you look at and say, man, this is a leader, right? He may have even been the shortest of all of his brothers. But God says, this is the one. And Samuel anoints him. And we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day, which was a sign of God's favor. Not just the anointing, that physical anointing that Samuel did, but this is a sign of God's favor. This is, this is truly somebody that God is going to work through. Now, I don't know about you. When I read this text, especially about the, the part that it says that the Lord looks on the heart, and then by implication it's David's heart that apparently is what God is looking for, I, I'm deeply troubled. In fact, a few chapters earlier, Samuel himself said, well, God's going to choose another king after the heart, that's who's going to be a man after the heart of God. And in Acts, it's reiterated that David was a man after God's own heart. Honestly, again, I'm disturbed by this. And you should be too. Right? And that's not to have a low view of the Bible to read something and say, man, I don't know about that, God. It means we have a high view of the Bible because we know that, okay, something is here and we're allowed to question it and figure it out and dig in and ask questions. And the reason why it disturbs me is this. When you look at David's actions, 
He wasn't a whole lot better than Saul. I mean, just to give you a, a little tidbit, we're going to be talking about the life of David uh, for the next few weeks, but just to give you a little picture, David decided he was, he was done being a leader and when he was king over all of Israel. He said, man, I'm, I'm just tired of, of going out with my military. I'm tired of going out and fighting these battles, so I'm going to stay home. I'm going to take a vacation, something he shouldn't have done. And while he's on vacation at home, you know, kind of a staycation, he's the one that started that, I guess, he saw somebody, he saw um, a, a woman named Bathsheba, and he said, man, to send her and bring her to me, and he sleeps with her. And she happened to be the wife of one of the officers in his army, right? And so she gets pregnant. And so to try to cover this up, he brings home this officer. He brings home Bathsheba's husband, right? Tries to get them together so that, so that nobody's going to know that it was David that slept with her, right? And when that doesn't work, he has the officer purposely killed in battle. Man, after God's own heart, I'm troubled by that. There's one thing we need to keep in mind. If we take the, 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 the if, if, if we look over the expanse of Scripture, we remember that Jesus taught that anybody who is who's lusted after somebody in their heart is guilty of adultery. And anybody who hates somebody has committed murder in their heart. And that they're just as guilty as if you had done those things. In other words, you and I are in the same boat as David. We can never look on somebody else, if they're, even if they're in a different context, even if we think they've done something even worse than say, man, they are more guilty before God than I am. No, we are all in the same boat. So the question is, what was it about David that was different about his heart? What did God see? As we go forward in the next few weeks, um, we have to realize that, that, that the answer may not be directly in this text, but it's throughout the whole life of David. And if we look through the whole life of David, there's, there's two things I think that we see about David's heart. When, when God looks at his heart and, and he looks at Eliab and he says, no, that's not the one. I look at the heart. When he, when he sees Saul and he rejects Saul and says, no, that's, this is not my kind of king. He looks at David and says, that's my kind of king. What was it about David. I think it's two things that are closely related. David had a repentant heart that sought after God. David had a, a repentant heart that sought after God. Right? When David was brought face to face with his sin, as we will see, David was broken over it. David was not broken over the consequences. David was not broken that he got caught. David was broken. He agreed with God about his sin, and he was broken in his spirit. Listen, he was king. There didn't need to be any consequences. He could have done whatever he wanted. In fact, he did many times. But when it was brought to his attention by Nathan the prophet, he was broken. He didn't have to be broken. Nobody's really surprised when, when a king does that kind of thing. Somebody with his kind of power. He was broken over his own sin when brought face to face with his sin, seeing himself for who he really was and what he had really done. He was broken hearted. When was the last time you were broken hearted over something you had done? Or do you just tend to be brokenhearted that you got caught? Or do you just tend to be brokenhearted about the consequence of your actions? David had a repentant 
heart, meaning he, was, he agreed with God about his own brokenness and his own sin. And the second part is really closely related to that. It is sought after God. Because to truly seek after God is to agree with him, to, to look at things from his perspective, including yourself, your own brokenness. But what does it mean to, to seek after God? I mean, I think for us, we're a lot like Samuel. We look at the external things when it comes to what it means to, to, to be faithful to God, to, to seek after God. Maybe we look at somebody in the way they worship, and we're just like, man, they're just, they're just lost in worship. They must really love God. It's a good thing to be lost in worship. Or man, they, they just, 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 they just serve a ton. Or they, they say such intelligent, like, intelligent things during small group. They have all these amazing points. And they're really, pat- those are really good things. But do they really reveal our true heart? Let me tell you what I believe truly reveals David's true heart. True heart. And that he sought after God. David on this day that we're reading about today was not anointed king over Israel. The text is very careful to say that he was anointed. Yes, before God said, okay, this is going to be my next king. But on this day, David was not anointed king. He did not become king. It was was really just a symbolic act to say this is the next one that God has chosen. It would be 15 years. 15 years before David would lead anything significant as a king of Israel, and at that point it was only really part of the, the kingdom of Israel, it would be another 22 years, it would be a total of 22 years, another seven and a half years, before David was, was king over all of Israel. During that time were some of the hardest moments of David's life. Saul We don't know if it's because he knows what happened in Bethlehem. We don't know if it's because David eventually would become a warrior. Uh, David and Goliath, remember that story? Well, David became kind of a military leader after that. And there was a song that people would say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands, right? And, And Saul became jealous. And so for whatever reason, because he knew what God was doing, or maybe he was just simply jealous, he became mad with envy and sought to kill David for the rest of his own life. And in that difficulty, David sought after God. Not just in some external sense, not because he prayed a lot. Because he did things God's way, even in times of difficulty. There were two opportunities David had, as we'll see later on. There were two opportunities that David had to take Saul's life. One of those times where David was hiding out in a cave with, with some of his guys, and Saul was out searching for him, and they were among the caves, and all of a sudden Saul has to go to the bathroom, right? And his guys are like, okay, just go find a tree. No, number two, all right? It's in your Bible. You should read your Bible more. So goes into the cave to relieve himself, and it happens to be the very same cave that David and his guys are hiding in. And they can see Saul, but because it's dark back there, Saul cannot see them. And his guys are like, finally God has given Saul into your hands, and David said, no. Nah. Instead, he takes off a corner of Saul's garment to prove that he was there. But he said, I will not lift up my hand against God's anointed one. Even when it would have been expedient to do so, God does not, um, David does not abandon God. David, in the midst 
of suffering and difficulty, continues to trust God to the point, not that it will all work out, but continues to trust God and says, if I do it your way, God, and things fall apart around me, if they continue to get worse, I will still be faithful to you. So I think what this tells us, when we look at this passage in the whole of the life of David, is, is this, when we talk about come full circle around to what matters most, I think when it comes to our relationship with God, what matters most, at least in our relationship, because there's a lot of things that matter to God, right? His own glory, right? The way that, that we treat, there's a lot of things that matter, but when it comes to our relationship with him, what matters to God is a repentant heart that seeks him. Now here's, I, I realize I just preached this, but here's the problem I have with this, okay? If I can critique my own message. It's really squishy. I mean, people, give me a list. All right, what matters to God are these, these few things. Great, I will accomplish those things. What matters to God is to stay away from these. Great, I will stay away from these things. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have boundaries. But it's not about lists, people. What matters to God is a repentant heart that seeks him. When God looked on the heart of Eliab, he said, no, that is not somebody with a repentant heart that seeks me. When he looked on the heart of Saul, he said, no, that is not somebody with a repentant heart that seeks me. When he looked at David, though he could see in the future and know all that David would do, he said, there's a repentant heart that seeks me. That's what matters to God. So how, how do we know if we do this thing? I mean, where does this, this come into play? It is kind of squishy. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. The first one is this. When you're brought face to face with your own sin and brokenness, do you deflect? Do you blame others? Do you excuse it away? I mean, it doesn't even have to be about sin. It could be just about something that you've done that's a mistake. If you ever sat in a meeting and then there's a project and you've missed a deadline or, or you've dropped the ball or you've done something wrong and you said, man, yeah, you know, that billing department over there. I, I think it was something over there. Or do you own it? And when it is sin, do you own it? Not because you're sorry for getting caught. Not because you're sorry about the consequences, but are you broken over your own sin? Do you see your sin and realize, this is, this is rebellion against God, and I am broken over, and I am broken about how I have treated God's beloved, how I have treated those created in God's own image. Are you broken? Second question is this. When things are falling apart, Who or what do you cling to? Because right? it's, it's a repentant heart that seeks God. It's easy to praise God when we got that raise. Right? Hashtag blessed. Got that new car. It's easy to tell of God's goodness and, and, and show up here and show up in your small group when things are going well. What do you cling to when literally all hell is breaking loose? 
Do you cling to the things of God? Do you cling to his word? Even though you read it and you're like, God, this is not true in my life and I'm mad about it. Do you still cling to it? Do you still cling to it looking for some hope? Do you cling to his people? Do you show up to small group even though you're beat up? Do you show up here even though you're beat up? Do you continue to serve even though you're, you're beat up? And it's not about doing things. It's about saying, man, I'm going to pursue these things. And I'm going to pursue God even in the midst of suffering. Jennifer and I have two very dear friends that have exhibited this for us in incredible ways. We've actually gone to them for, for, for life advice and marriage advice at, at times. And um, a number of years ago, their oldest son murdered two of their younger sons when they were children. Friends, I cannot imagine having to live through such a tragedy. And these are people who had, who had always loved God before and always loved Jesus before. But as, as Jennifer and I have known them and walked with them and loved them and prayed with them, as I did the funeral, and as we've become closer friends throughout all of this, some days are dark. They will always walk with a limp, but they have clung to the hope of Jesus in the midst of this. Right? And let me tell you, there's, God can do miraculous things, and he does. But there are some things we live through that will never be made right on this earth. Do you cling to God in those moments? Do you cling to God when the divorce papers are signed and your prayers you feel like weren't answered? Do you cling to God when the job is done? Do you cling to God when the house is gone? Do you cling to God when the diagnosis is terminal? Do you cling to God when it doesn't appear like there's any hope that's going to be okay? that's what it means to seek God. Not just when times are good, but when times are difficult. It matters to God and our relationship with him is a repentant heart that seeks him. And seeking him is more about than just an hour on Sunday morning. And we have good news. Because if we stop right here, this is, this is a terrible sermon if we stop right here, just honestly, Right? we stop right here, we think, man, okay, so I've got to go do this. I've got to get my act together. I've got to figure out how to clean. Well, how do I do this? It's, it's all me. But David gives us an incredible clue. We've already talked about it a little bit in Psalm 51. David wrote Psalm 51 in response to his brokenness of his own sin after he had slept with Bathsheba and killed her husband. It's going to be up here on the screen. If you want to flip there, it's Psalm 51, but it's going to be up here on the screen as well. Psalm 51, 10, I believe. David says this. After talking about his sin and laying his brokenness out before all of us for the world to see, he says this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, verse 10, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David understood what you and I need to know because too many times we stop here and say, I need to do this, and I've got to work at this. And I've... Yes, there's a point where God wants us to offer him, us, offer him ourselves. But David knew what you and I need to know, that this is not a work that we're doing on our own. This is a work that God is doing in us. And it's not 50-50, people. It's not that God is meeting us halfway and we meet him halfway. God is meeting us all the way. We just have to open our lives to him, and he will create in us a clean heart. He will renew a right spirit within us. Friends, the only way, the only path to a heart as repentant and seeks God, is to ask God himself, for God himself to reach inside of us to change our hearts. And it happens when we submit ourselves to him and to the lordship of, of Jesus. See, our hearts are broken, not because they are sad, but because they are full of sin. But Jesus has provided a way because he loves us. Not because we work at it, but because he loves us. Not because we do something, but because he loves us. He willingly died on the cross for you and for me. And when we hand over our lives to him and trust him for that, he creates in us a new heart. Right? Paul says that, that, in a, that when we have submitted our lives to Jesus, we are a new creation. God is the one who renews. God is the one that brings us to repentance. God is the one that gives us a clean heart. Not because of anything we have done, but because of what he has done for us through Jesus on the cross. So what would somebody who know you, knows you well say about the condition of your heart? matters to God is a repentant heart that seeks him. David understood this, and it's something you and I need to understand. It's a gift that God longs to give you. Are you willing to receive it? You're willing to open yourself up, submit yourself to God, and say, God, I am yours. Would you create in me a clean heart? Let me pray for us. God, I feel like every day, every day I, be, <laughs> I begin anew to rebel against you. And God, there are times when I believe that it is up to me to fix that, to renew that. And God, I am sorry when I believe that I could possibly do that on my own. God, thank you that you love us. You don't leave us in our brokenness. You don't leave us in our sin. You don't leave us with black hearts. But God, you love, because of your own love and your own mercy, you loved us enough to send Jesus to die for us. Not just to cleanse us from our sins, not just to forgive our sins, but to give us a new heart. God, thank you for new life in you through your son Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. May we rest in that. May we consider the condition of our hearts. 
Maybe we have sung all the songs, we've known all the words, and we've done everything we know how to do, but we've never handed ourselves and our lives and our heart over to you. God, help us to do that. For those of us who are weary because we've been trying to do it on our own, God, help us to just simply accept the gift of grace that comes through your son, Jesus. And God, thank you for the gift of new hearts. May we honor, may we glorify you through hearts that are broken over our sin, but rejoice and seek after you through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Let all the people say, amen. Amen.